Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. This is show number two. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, and I am super excited about this one. We've got three guests that you're not going to want to miss. Coming up in the next hour or so, you'll hear from Jonathan Thomas, Alex Solis, and Donato Lani making his podcast debut, apparently. Pretty exciting stuff. Before we get to them, I want to welcome in the usual crew, and we'll start off with my typical co-host in all things podcasting you know him you love him he's on the planet texas and he's the people's champion he's jonathan kinchin what's up jk ptf what's going on had a had a good weekend from home uh i didn't get to come out to 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 maryland to have any crab cakes to buy any horses or to place any on-track wagers but i did participate paramutually and my son scored five goals in a soccer game so what's better than that (laughs) Beautiful stuff. We also want to bring in the real brains behind this operation, the the actual insider on this industry show. I am talking about Windstar Farms, Sean Tugel. Sean, how are you today? Doing well, Pete. Uh, excited to, to get another show going, and, and I think we've got a uh, great cast of characters that are they're going to come on and, and give us a little insight into uh, what they do and, and, uh, and their clients. I want to ask you about the sales this last weekend, but first I had a silly question for you. Were you guys happy with the music I chose? I was willing to delegate the music selections to you two, having chosen it for all the other shows. Neither of you showed any interest, so I just went with my gut and uh, came up with Chestnut Mare by The Birds for the intro song, and then a little number called uh, uh, Water Song from Hot Tuna to close things out. You, you guys approve? Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> was that a question? It was a, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's a I real question. The, I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. you didn't you listen know, to the first it, show? Well, I, no, it's hard. We, we, we listened back. We were there. It'd be, be a little narcissistic of it, wasn't it, to listen back to the show? Hey, it's how you improve. It's how you improve. Anyway, all right. I'm glad you're happy with the musical selections then. We'll take that as a yes. And Sean, give us a little bit of an overview of the sale and Preakness Weekend from your perspective and Windstar's perspective. Well, certainly um, we had a, a good weekend. New York Central won the uh, Maryland Sprint Championship there. Um, yeah, our other horses, Preamble and, and um, Improbable, unfortunately didn't get the job done. But, uh, you know, Improbable ran a really good race, I thought, in the previous, maybe just a little flat down the lane. Um, but uh, he tried hard, wasn't beaten far. And, uh, you know, he'll probably get a, get a little, little bit of a rest and, and see what the back half of the year is in store for him. Um, you know, I was, I was delighted that, that the, uh, you know, I thought Pimlico put on a good, a great presentation two days, Friday and Saturday were great cards, full of stakes, full fields. Uh, so happy that they got to have finally a, a full weekend full of sunshine and, and, uh, dry weather. Uh, they really deserved that. And, uh, I thought the racing was fantastic. We saw some unbelievable displays of talent, you know, Kafife setting, uh, setting the, the track record there, uh, challenge set a stakes record. Uh, we saw Catholic boy come back off the bench and, and win nicely. And, and we saw war of will who got a troubled trip in the Derby and, and we're all probably sitting here saying what may have been and, and would have loved to seen the, them, him fight out to the wire with, uh, with maximum security in the Derby, but, but he broke through and won the Preakness and, uh, hopefully we'll see one of those $5 million showdowns between, uh, those two horses coming up. But, um, but the racing was awesome, and uh, they carried over into the sales. And and Fazek Tipton, you know, Evan was on last week, and and he carried on about uh, the success that sale has had uh, over the years. And they accomplished another great uh, million-dollar sale horse again. Uh, it's actually the sales record, 1.8 million dollars. They're up in average. They're up in gross. So uh, you know, it's a great example that the, that the market is very healthy, and and the business you know, is, is, is strong and, and there's a lot of positives going on in our business right now. It's great to hear that. That is for sure. All right. We've got these three guests. I say we start bringing them in right now. And now I'd like to welcome to our airwaves, the trainer of Catholic boy, my old friend, Jonathan Thomas. How are you, buddy? I'm doing great guys. How are you all? Things are excellent. I'm going to start off by going with a, a question that delves back into uh, our history together, Jonathan, when we were roommates about a million years ago in that 
creaky old attic house when we were both working for the Saratoga special. And we were so happy. Uh, Susan, my wife, who stayed with us a lot that summer, uh, loved hanging out with you, remembered going to the sales with you and having a good time. And when Catholic Boy won the Travers last year, she had the best line when she saw your smiling face in the winner's circle pointed up there and said, I've seen that guy in his pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) Amongst other things, I'm sure. (laughs) But it... Pretty incredible, you know, when you think about, you know, especially going up there for the first couple of times and, um, you know, I, I don't know, I might have just slept on like the, the landing, you know, at the top <laughs> of the stairs there for a little while. But, uh, yeah, it's it's been an incredible place for, for a lot of reasons, but definitely the kind of climb from from that time to, you know, the Travers for sure. Was this always the plan when you headed to Saratoga was working for the special a way to, as has happened with many other folks, including uh, Travis Stone comes to mind, John Panagot comes to mind as people who started there, made connections in the industry, and then went on to pursue their each individual passion. Did you always have it as an end goal, or was it just something to do that summer? I'm pretty sure that uh, it was more me delivering papers or helping Sean for a place to sleep. I can't say that I worked there. (laughs) I think I was more of a parody case where <laughs> Travis and John actually were, you know, added some, some intellect and some something positive to the paper. I'm pretty sure I just did, uh, you know, I was paying some, some cheap rent. So, Fair enough. Jonathan, congratulations first off on, uh, on Catholic Boy's successful return to the races uh, this past weekend. I wanted to dive in a little bit um, with him and, and his breeding and, and just how he makes it easy on you to maybe get uh, map out his campaign, being that he's by more than ready. He was a pro- prolific sire, both both dirt and turf. And uh, just b- having that luxury of, of having a horse who's not a grade one talent on both dirt and turf, and then how he gives you an ease to, uh, to map out a ca- campaign and not be restricted uh, to a certain surface. Well, I think, mean- I've I've been a big fan of More Than Ready for a long time, and that goes back to, you know, before Catholic Boy, uh, you know, with my time with Todd and, you know, um, the the kind of offspring that we had there. And I always found them very genuine, enthusiastic, honest training horses. You know, a lot of horses from different sires kind of carry on their idiosyncrasies, but More Than Ready's tend to be so versatile, um, you know, I think if you can take last year where you had Roy H and Rushing Fall and Catholic Boy, you couldn't have taken three different, you know, three more, three horses with three different, uh, you know, talents. So, um, you know, I, I think this is a reflection of his sire for sure, the ability to go, uh, you know, different surfaces. And, you know, I, I, I don't really know how to identify why that's the case as much as, you know, he's just, a you know, thankfully a very gifted athlete and two, he just does whatever you ask him to do with no, uh, no hesitation. So that's a, a real credit to his sire. And obviously, um, you know, the mother must be coming through there. Uh, he's out of a Bernardini mare who's out of a seeking the gold mare. So I think he gets some of the stamina from that. And then obviously the more than ready is just, uh, you know, been a, been a huge added bonus to him. I know there's another horse that, that you've been lucky to, to be handed over there with, with, uh, unfortunately Rick Violet's passing and, and another horse who ironically um, is bred by the same breeder as Catholic boy. Do you have any updates on diversifying how he's doing and, and coming back for a campaign this year? Sure. Yeah, no, he, he came to us in great shape. He had a, he had a, t- a little bit of time off over the winter. He just had his second breeze at Belmont park. He looks great. He's carrying great flesh. And, you know, listen, we were, you know, very, uh, you know, fortunate to, to get this horse and we can only hope to continue on, uh, you know, Rick Violet's and Melissa's good work that they did with this horse. So, you know, it's a real honor to have him and, uh, you know, he, he, he looks well and I'm really excited about uh, getting him back to the races this year. JT, I, I would imagine this is JK, uh, nat- you know, naturally you're going to have a little bit of an issue, I would assume at some point. Um, but it's probably a, a good thing with Catholic boys, um, uh, ability to do both services, but are you going to keep them separated? You think, in, in in terms of never running them against one another, or do you foresee that could be a, a possibility? And you're prepared to handle it if you have to. 
I, I guess if that ever happens, it's in a strange way, probably a blessing that we've gotten that far along with both, you know, um, but right now from the timing and, 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 and their, and their schedules, you know, I don't see it being an issue yet, but you know, if, if we get to that spot, obviously we'll try to navigate that the best way possible. And, you know, um, but at the, this moment in time, I think we're probably going to be able to keep them separated for a while. That makes me uh, have to ask the question, how far along have you gotten in terms of plotting Catholic boys next step after that super impressive return last weekend? Well, you know, we tend to take things race by race, but certainly, you know, we'd like to, you know, make sure that we have a very fit and happy horse kind of come fall. But uh, the Suburban would be the step that we'd like to take next. And, you know, John Panna got the huge part of this. I mean, we, I don't think there's a day that goes by where we don't talk about this horse and what we're going to do with him for <laughs> 10 or 20 minutes. Um, we're taking it race by race, but the suburban, the reason we picked the Dixie was because of the six weeks in between uh, the, the, the Dixie and the suburban and historically he's done really well with a six week rest. And, um, you know, we kind of cleared that first hurdle. Uh, I thought the right way it actually went better than I expected. And, you know, a mile and a quarter really does play to his strengths. And, and uh, so the Suburban seems like a good step. And if we're going to use a timing scenario again, that would put us more towards the Woodward. But that could always change, and the Whitney could kind of be a default. And if it's for, for throwing everybody for a curveball, you know, the, the Arlington million. But I, I guess that would be in the instance that for some reason the Suburban didn't go as we planned. It's fantastic to have that level of options, and I like the way you're thinking about it so strategically. J.K., it sounded like you had a follow-up there. Yeah, no, I, we have J.T. on. I've, I've, I've got to hang out with J.T. a few times. I've never really got to dig deep in, into to Bridalwood and your involvement there and, and kind of how that relates to to your career as a trainer And because and, I know you, you'll have horses and they, and they go somewhere else, I think. At one point, you had newspaper of record. Tell everyone who's listening who might not be familiar with with Bridalwood what it is, the role that you you have there, and 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 kind of uh, anything else that you think might be interesting. Yeah, no, I mean Bridalwood is basically you know it, it's a big beautiful facility that uh, George Isaac runs. John Malone <clears throat> uh, bought it a few years ago and has put a tremendous amount of capital and resources into it. It's a beautiful, beautiful training center. I kind of liken it to a smaller version of Fair Hill. You know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful place. And uh, it's a place where we get horses ready to go to the races. And in some instances, that means going on the other trainers. And just recently, through, through a couple of good horses, our stable uh, has, has grown, our racing stable. But, uh, you know, in the last five years, you know, we, we broke Destin and Gunrunner and Caprit, Karina Mia, Catholic boy, newspaper, a record. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving a couple out, but, you know, we've had a very good run. We've been very fortunate with the sort of clientele that we've uh, grown, and, and it's just been a great place. The reason I went down there is working for Todd, <clears throat> it seemed very apparent that this is a recruiting game as much as a training game, and I really wanted to get better at identifying young horses to kind of add to a stable you know I, I i think if you're just training it's very hard to kind of wait by an empty stall, stall so to speak and hope a horse comes to you uh sometimes you have to get out there and buy them or, or stick your neck out and try to get them uh you know by going to the sales and everything and we've been very lucky and that's really kind of been the reason we've been able to grow as quickly as we have you know it's like any sport you know you need to try to get those you know, number one, number two draft picks for your for your barn, or, or it's going to be a really difficult task. Uh, you know, trying to get 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 to the top. That's really interesting, and I think for some of our listeners, horse player types coming over from the other show, that's a point they probably haven't thought of. The idea that Bridalwood being a place where that prepares horses for the races, and then also races horses off the farm, it's all which is also a training center that it is almost like you get to, to scout some of those younger horses and, and maybe that gives you a leg up in terms of some of the decision-making in terms of who you end up racing under the Bridalwood Farm banner. Is that, am I understanding that right, Jonathan? No, I mean, there, 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 there's some merit to that. I mean, you know, in the instance of like newspaper record, you know, when Chad sent us, uh, you know, a nice little group of horses for Mr. Clareman, 
though they were always going to go to chat you of course. Know, and, that, that, and he's he's been like he, he was one of the first guys to really send me a volume of horses so you know i always have his back in that regard um so you, you know so we'll get those kind of horses but we've developed a team there that can get them started and then that's the point we're just trying to do the best thing we can for the horses and for the trainers that are going to get them and uh you know some of the clientele that i've brought along um you know end up sending some more horses our way uh so it's it's been interesting and it's definitely not the normal way to to set out on a training career it just kind of evolved that way organically and you know i i definitely want to try to run with whatever opportunities we're given and do the best that we can uh in whatever arena that is and this it just happens to be training a little bit more now I have another question about the Bridalwood operation and just training center training in general. This is just a theory of mine. I don't have any data behind it, but it does seem to me that horses trained at training centers where they have a variety of different ways for horses to train as opposed to the typical racetrack setup where you have things like uphill gallops and things like that. I feel like horses often coming out of a place like Fair Hill, and I imagine the same might be true for Bridlewood, can sometimes have a real fitness advantage over horses on the racetrack. And I give them a little bit of credit for being fitter off layoffs. I give them a little bit of credit when they're stretching out or in situations where stamina might come into play. Do you think there's anything to that? Or is this just a theory that a horse player came up with? No, I think it's, it's you know, it's definitely a, a, a good approach or a good thought process to it. Did you all ever see Rocky when he went to Siberia? <laughs> That's one of the great montages like of that, all you know? time. <laughs> So, no, it, it, it definitely, I, I think you're, you're getting two things. One, you're getting, you know, the variety of training, you know, the different, different scenarios you can put a horse in to train. And sometimes, like, uh, soundness issues go along with it. I can train a horse on a certain surface that I could on another. L- little nuances like that. But also you have the tranquility of those places. And if a horse has been on the road, and and kind of had a stressful couple of months uh you know it's a quiet environment where you can get them eating again and their weight and just you know i i call it sweet sweetening them sweetening them up you know just trying to get them happy and uh it's it's a little bit easier in those scenarios but then you know we've done this with catholic boy multiple times where we've like it's time to kind of up the game and, and, and go to the racetrack and kind of really pick up steam too. So both, both places are, are, are very important and you need both to, to really do well. I like that idea though, that there's a place where a horse can just be a horse and that mental side of it that I think horse players don't often really think about. You look at the paper and horse players are they're understandably very focused on numbers and what they see on paper, but these are these are animals and these are athletes and the idea that there's this mental component makes makes a lot of sense and you'll hear people talk about it and horse players will even see this you can say oh that horse is kind of yeah they might be going a little sour he might be souring and the idea that there's a place they can go to to sweeten up uh, it's it's something to think about in your handicapping when you're going through and trying to tell the stories of the individual horses sean do you have one more for jonathan before we let him get on with his busy day are there any two-year-olds that you have that are uh, by freshman sires that are, are starting to show you anything? And, and now that we're through the, the meat of the two-year-old sales, um, have there been any uh, freshman sires that have jumped out and uh, kind of stuck out in your mind and uh, that you could see kind of taking over the rank here come, come this fall? Uh, you know, it seems like a pretty well-rounded group. You know, um, I thought some of the Liam's maps looked good. I mean, of course, I'd be remiss to – not mention American Pharaoh, but I think, you know, we're seeing that continuity between his weanlings, yearlings, and two-year-olds. I have a few of those, and they seem to be every bit as good of movers as, uh, you know, they were at the sales. So that that's kind of an interesting horse to me and to everybody else. So it's not like it's a secret. Um, I was always a big fan of Daredevil early on, so I'm kind of curious to see how his horses come out running. I didn't get lucky enough to pluck one out, but I, I, I wanted to get my hands on one or two carpe diem um you know i, I, I palace malice I, I i think the the the, the whole pool has been well represented at the sales and i, I think it's a crapshoot right now as to who's going to be leading freshman sire but there's a lot of exciting ones and uh you know we're always trying to look for 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 uh, you know one of the better athletes 
Jonathan, I want to thank you for your time today. We'll let you get on with it, but we really appreciate you coming on the In the Ring uh, Pedigree podcast with us. No, listen, it's great, great to uh, talk with you all. It's a heady group. <laughs> I, I didn't know it was legal for you three to be together, but you know, <laughs> it may not be for long. We'll see. We'll see how many of these we can get away with. And we're it's so- a good group. It's a good group. We're sorry to keep you waiting. It, sorry to keep you waiting today. That was but, fully JK's fault. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna I, not I, hesitate to throw I was him under the bus. Say, I mean, I, I I really didn't expect to get treated that way. Or like <laughs> going on Larry King or something. You know. You know. You know. Who we can blame it on. We can blame it on Michael McCarthy. Let's blame it on him. He's not here to defend himself. What do you think, I blame JT? Everything that I I don't I, I blame everything on Whiting. If I don't have <laughs> if I have no one else to blame it on. <laughs> Kennedy assassination. It was Whitey. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Jonathan, thanks again, man. We will be talking soon. Yeah, thanks, fellas. Take care. Bye now. And now I'd like to welcome in the co-proprietor of Solis Lit Bloodstock, Alex Solis. Alex, how are you today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. I want to start off by asking you a family question, which I'm sure you get a whole lot of. Only logical being that you have a, a grandfather trainer, a father who's a famous jockey. I'm just curious what lessons from your earliest days do you still bring to your job as a bloodstock agent? What really sticks with you that you learned from the members of your family? My dad would be the probably the biggest contributor in my career because from a very early age I used to always go to the racetrack every weekend and my dad was big into reason, reading the racing form so at a very young age I learned to handicap especially how jockeys would ride races I think that was a big part of that for my dad and then just learning how to manage horses this like little tips he taught me as a jockey of, you know if, if you have a sprinter the first time you're going to route it's always going to be the best race if they're a sprinter they can do it once but then you'll ruin them after that little things like that have really helped me throughout my career as a blood cycle huge very cool. JK, I know, uh, often has questions for industry people when it comes to their handicapping processes. You got one for Alex, Jonathan? Well, I'm going to tell a, just a, a really quick story. The first time that I ever met Alex was at uh, in Saratoga, and we were sitting around talking, and, and, and I was a huge fan of two horses that Alex bought, Shared Belief and the Pamplemousse, which the Pamplemousse was a weird one, like I just, like a kind of an, uh, a one that I just remember getting involved in racing and seeing this kind of, you know, funny looking gray horse with the crazy trainer. And I kind of fell in love with him <laughs> and his story. And so we're standing at this bar and I said, Alex, what else have you done besides shared belief in the Pamplemousse? But I didn't, I didn't mean it. Like who the heck are you? What else have you done? I was just really curious of like some other cool horses. He looked at me like I was crazy. And three, three years later, we, uh, we, we made up on Derby Eve. So, uh, not that we needed to make up, but, uh, I thought that was a funny story. Alex, tell tell everyone who's, who's listening. What else have you done besides shared belief and, uh, and, and the pample moose? Yeah, I don't need to go there. Thank you. <laughs> no, hey, it's a, it's a funny story and I got a lot of respect for JK. So it's, it's, it was fun to talk to him and cause I, I do follow you guys and JK's uh, Twitter feeds always lighten up. So it's, it's, it was a lot of fun to have that conversation. It is amazing that he could commit that faux pas and then do it exactly again, you know, five years later. I do, I do appreciate that about, about Jonathan, but yeah. Hey, I'm just glad. I'm glad he's still talking about me. So if, I, if he wasn't, I'd be in trouble. I tell you what, the uh, actually one of the the reasons we wanted to have you on is is obviously there's the involvement with with Country House and LNJ Foxwoods, um, but the other one that kind of got me going was uh, was you were a part of a big part. LNJ was of uh, this this all pick this all Javier pick five we saw at Pimlico last Friday uh, with I can never say the name, but Kofefi obviously. Uh, was unbelievably impressive in breaking the track record. And then Dog Tag, I, I thought maybe you could give us a little information about how those came to you. I think Dog Tag was a homebred. Um, let us let us know a little bit about those two horses. Yeah, so like with Ellen and Jay, when we started doing their stuff, we decided to come up with like a three-prong attack for them because they, they wanted to get in the game for a long-term thing. But, you know, when you start with broodmare bands, it takes a long time before anything starts happening. So we, we told them if we focus on some part of private purchase stuff and then going to sales and looking for good physicals to get them like a little injection in the game to get them going. And then, you know, of course, the homebred stuff. 
So with Kofifi, it was really or Kofefe. However, no one knows how to say it, so you're not <laughs> wrong. So don't worry about that. Uh, she was, so she was just a freak physical in the mischief play with a really big page. So we thought she would be a keeper for the long-term play. But, you know, we actually, with the Ross, we, we buy and sell. So she was actually bought to the race originally with the idea of maybe pinnocking her as a two-year-old girl. She was, she was, we actually pinnocked Instagram, Instagram the same year. And we bought both of them in, the, in two different sales, and they were in the Fazit Tip in Miami sale. And about two weeks before the sale, we had to decide what we were going to do, and we decided to keep her because we were going to sell Instagram. And so that's that's how she came about. So that was a you know a yearling purchase. Uh, and then dog tag, you know, the Ross are big about it playing internationally. We you know we have a couple of mares in France right now, a couple of mares in Australia, and racehorses in both countries. And so we went down there uh, because you know my partner Jason's big into play, loves pedigrees, and he's really knowledgeable on that. And he said, you know. I was looking at this book at English, and there's an unbridled song filly that Coolmore had, who's at half to Shamardol, who I think is maybe a good stallion, and you know, whose mother is a half to street cry. He's like, we really could use this for the Ross. Let me go down and take a look at this mare. And so we jumped on a plane, flew down. The mare was really nice, and he said, we got down there, and everyone's like, oh, why are you looking at an unbridled song mare? So down in Australia, they, they do not like unbridled song. That's how we were able to buy her so relatively inexpensively for her pedigree, because she's got black type herself. And she'd only had two foals down there. And then that's how Dog Tech came up. We brought her up and, uh, you know, Warfront was kind of ticking along then. We thought it would be a good mating because she's a big Scopey Unbridled song. And we really wanted to make sure we got a good hind leg and put some more, you know, physique on her. And uh, it was perfect. It worked out great. That's Dog Tech. Alex, it's Sean. Um, first question for you. Did Max Hodge treat you to a nice crab dinner at Ocean Pride uh, for uh, having a, a new track record by an end of mischief filly just so timely before the uh, two-year-old sale this week? Yeah, you know, Ocean Pride was my, a very good friend of mine this week, and I actually went there this week. We were there three times, if you could believe that. I got cuts <laughs> all over my fingers for eating so much crab. <laughs> uh, that's great. But, uh, no, you know, I – you were you were kind of going on about the Ross plan and and, um, and and knowing a little bit of their portfolio and 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 how you and and Jason uh, and the Ross have been uh, very strong supporters and investors of uh, the Windstar Stallion. Um, we've had some great luck with Super Saver over the years. Um, you guys just recently purchased Commissioner's highest price uh, auction horse here at the OBS April, and and I know that you have a couple homebred Carpe Diem two-year-olds. Uh, any updates you have for us on how those horses are doing, and uh, maybe you have any other two-year-olds that are coming up, coming up that are homebreds or uh, some purchases? Yeah, you know, I'll start with the with the Carpe Diem filly. The Carpe Diem at Gemsic Park is actually half the tapped. Uh, she's training awesome. Like she could she could be any type. She's actually going to leave for Richard Mandel in the next two weeks. Uh, so that she's a big, strong filly, like all the Carpe Diems. They, they carry a lot of substance, but she's great-minded, moves well, very exciting prospect. Uh, she is not named yet. Uh, the commissioner filly is at Stone Street and will leave in the next week or so, and she'll be going to Rudolph, which you know very well, Rudy. And uh, she's couldn't hasn't taken a step wrong. They, they worked her, and Ian called, and he's like, this is a really nice filly. So uh, with those two, yeah, I couldn't be more excited about them. Homebred two-year-olds right now, of that whole group, I would say the half to the filly we won in France with yesterday, or the full sister, actually. We had a filly win in France and a golden box, who uh, I think is a really special filly. We just, she, got nom- she got supplemented to the Irish Oaks today after she broke her maiden yesterday really impressively. She ran third first time out uh, to the, actually the Guineas winner going a mile, and she never wanted to go a mile, never never touched her, just gave her a race. She came back to win going a mile and a half, very impressively yesterday, a hot maiden in France. She's uh, her full sister. Uh, I don't think Jamie's named you yet. She's uh, probably my most exciting prospect, I think, homebred-wise this year. That goes back to Pedigree. That mare was purchased in France. Her name's Gold Round. She's actually a grade three winner, half to Goldie Cova. And we've had a grade three winner of the mare already, and the mare's been gold to us. We have five daughters, which is really neat. Uh, obviously, uh, a couple of weeks ago was a lot of fun for you guys uh, with Country House uh, winning the Kentucky Derby. Um, you know, look, the sales, we can, they're pretty easy to follow how things happen when it comes to a sale. Someone raises their hand, they buy the horse, homebreds, uh, that's pretty self-explanatory. The private purchases are always interesting. A lot of things go on. Uh, how did that unfold, the, the stuff that you can share? Obviously, I know there's some stuff that you can't. 
uh, did you were you watching at Gulfstream and you saw the the, the maiden breaker and you got on the phone or or, or what? Uh, how how did some of that unfold? Uh, getting that deal done with uh, a future Kentucky Derby winner. You know that was just built on an existing relationship with Guinness McFadden because I'd helped uh, Jerry Shields and Guinness the last couple of years buy yearlings, and so he was actually in the September sale and Guinness and I were going through their stuff before the sale or actually at the sale going through it again and he. He said, well, what do you think about this Colt? And I said, I like that Colt. And, you know, everything on him looks like good. You know, I, I, why don't we keep him? And he had a, actually a, a – who's the Philly by? He had a Philly by Lane's End Stallion, half to Frankel. Uh, noble Monica. Mission. So, Noble Mission, there you go. He had a Noble Mission. And, I, I, you know, I thought the Colt was better. So, we decided to keep him then. That's how I was originally involved. And then, you know, when he broke his maiden, it was very impressive. And, you know, Guinness, I – he had, at that time Jerry had already you know Jerry had passed away unfortunately and Guinness had inherited a large piece of the horse and I said to him I said Guinness just as a friend I don't think you need to hang on to 100% of a horse like that three-year-old they're just worth so much money why don't we why don't you do something on him and he said okay well let's listen to offers and go from there and you know the more and more I thought about it, I talked to Jason he's like why don't we just put the Ross in with him you know he gets along great with the Ross and they go along for the ride and they understand the whole thing and it'd be fun and I said, you know, that's a great idea. And that was it. I called Guinness and I said, what do you think about this? He said, well, what do you, how are we going to value him? I said, well, you know, you take your largest offer and we'll, we'll come up with a plan. I won't say what the number was, but yeah, it was, it just worked out really organically and nice. I wanted to ask about your interest in international racing and how that developed. It, I don't know that – and how common is that, that somebody would be so active both in the United States and also abroad when it comes to uh, when it comes to blood stock and racing horses? My international experience is more just from growing up in Southern California on Bali Frankel and realizing how important Europe was and really being able to pick his mind all the time about – you know, why is this? What's happening here? Why is this track so important? He was always great at answering questions, happy to help me out always. And so then when I started buying horses, I started buying a couple of horses in Europe because that time they were undervalued. You know, we picked up Daytona for 115000 I was involved in naturally Val Benny. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the beginning, that was a big part of my, my game. And I just really enjoyed it. And I had good relationships over there. And, you know, I don't know, Jason, when we started doing this, he, he was really gung-ho on trying to see how if we could scale both sides and you know we did a we were really really involved in the beginning and i and i think we both realized it was just so much taking a toll on us and just tra- traveling back and forth and you know we limited a little bit now but we'll definitely play you know more broodmare bands in places uh, i don't know i can't we can't go to every sale just too much to do now we've learned that do you project to be going to uh, royal ascot this year you know i thought we could have you know possibly three runners and i i don't know if any are like we have a really nice filly in france and i think we're going to run her in a listed stake race the same day as sandrium so i don't think she's going to go uh we have a two-year-old named invader who's a full brother to fog of war with wesley and wesley's trying to make it with him he thinks he's a very good horse but i don't know if he's on that he's been battling a little bit of a shin so i don't know if he's going to make it and then the last one was fancy dress party and i think we're going to withdraw her today she's supposed to go over for the commonwealth sprint or commonwealth cup and uh, I think we're going to withdraw her runner in the acorn. It's, you know, it's, I'd love to try on the grass being by Munnings, and she's worked so great on it. But it's hard to skip a, you know, a grade one at Belmont on Belmont Stakes Day going a mile when she's three for three. And I think she'll stay the distance. So I think we're going to pass on Ascot this year. I was going to ask, that was going to be my follow-up, was what goes into deciding when there is so much money to run for at home. But it's such an amazing experience to be able to run there. I just wasn't sure what the final factor comes down to when choosing between running for more money at home and then this crazy experience abroad, potentially. What does it really come down to? I, I don't imagine it's just a dollars and cents decision, is it? No, it, it really lasts. It's an amazing experience. and It's more about the pageantry over there and the quality of racing and showing your clients that, that experience. And the Ross were over there. They took them over there last year to experience that. And they've been to a lot of racing internationally. And they've been to the ARC. They, you know, they've been to the pre-Diane day, they've been to Irish champions day. So they've seen a lot of that, which that's, that's part of the experience we're trying to give. And, uh, you know, Kofifi was actually going to be nominated to the King stand. Cause I thought five, eight, so I didn't think they could, they could catch her ever. And I, I actually was going to nominate her and they, and they, they came back with a really low rating. And so I just didn't put the nomination. If she was nominated, I'd probably take her over there. Cause I, you know, 
that's a very prestigious grade one in five eighths. I think she'd be very difficult to beat over there. That's really, really interesting. That was an amazing performance last weekend, one we were raving about on the other show. I've got just one more for you, and then we'll let you go. This is one, uh, I think, for our general audience in particular. How much handicapping skill does one need to be a bloodstock agent, and how does handicapping skill come into play in your day-to-day profession? You know, I think for buying privately, you have to be a very good handicapper. I think that's very key um, in managing horses. I think, you know, you're going to find good spots by being a good handicapper. Uh, you know, buying, you know, I guess I'm saying that wrong. I think you have to be a very good handicapper because you have to know what's going on in the market to know what kind of yearlings to buy. Oh, that's so a good point, a handi- too. Good handicaps are good, is a very valuable asset. And and it's different kinds of handicapping, it sounds like. It's what's happening in the actual races, but you're talking about handicapping the market in general. It's not that different, I guess, trying to look for where the value might be. Is that where you were going with that? Of course, the value. And then, you know, when you're picking spots, you know, you can, you can look at it. You can handicap off the nominations and figure out where you need to be. And if you can find the right spot, that's the difference of winning a stake and not winning a stake with certain horses. Great stuff, Alex. Thank you so much for your time today. I'd love to have you back on soon. Well, thanks, guys. I really enjoyed this, and uh, you guys have a great day. Cheers, my friend. And now I want to bring in Bloodstock advisor Donato Lani. Donato, how are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Um, thanks for uh, getting me uh, on the, this podcast. It's, uh, it's, I don't think I've ever done a podcast in my life, but... Uh, and I don't think I've ever listened to a podcast, but people do. People do so, and I guess uh, it's, uh, it's a good way of uh, listening to uh, to uh, news on radio. I guess right where it is. Where it, yeah, basically it's it's the modern version. You know, it's not out over the airwaves. There are some podcasts that are the Steve Bick Show. Certainly, you can listen to in both formats. Ours at the moment is pod only, but. It's a it's a form of media that that really suits the modern world in a lot of ways, and we're really honored that you're uh, that you're winning your maiden here on the on the in the ring pedigree podcast. We couldn't be happier to have you. You're one of the names we have. This audience, from what we've seen so far, is a mix of industry people and also a lot of horse players. And even you know your name has been in the headlines such in the last few years that even horse players, I think, have have heard it and understand that you're one of the top bloodstock advisors out there. I was curious to ask you about your background and when you were living in Canada and working at harness tracks, if you ever thought you'd be somebody involved with horses running in the Kentucky Derby. Is that a thought that ever crossed your mind back then? Mm-hmm. I tell you that you know, growing up in Canada, I, I was very fortunate to uh, grow up in an area of Montreal where they were um, probably the some of the best standard bred trainers, French Canadian trainers that lived in Montreal, Quebec. Uh, I trained at a great little racetrack called Blue Bonnets. I, I got lucky and I met some some trainers that were uh, just phenomenal horse trainers. Um, in, um, so I got to learn to to be around horses and 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 look at horses and and you know learn how to put a bandage on when I was ten years old, do it right, and learn how to how to you know uh, put mud on a horse or pack a feet or you know, touch ankles, knees, and you know learn look for all kinds of things. And I was very fortunate to to grow up around that uh, harness community, that culture. Uh, they're great horse people, and they usually don't get the credit and recognition of um, of the the horse business, um, the thoroughbreds are, are mainstream. But um, and I think when I, I was young, I always I always loved watching um, thoroughbred racing on TV, especially the Derby and Preakness, Belmont, and all kinds of races, Travers. Um, so I, you know, I I always wanted to be around thoroughbreds um, growing up, and I, I loved the I loved the Kentucky Derby. I loved the racing side of. of uh, of horses with thoroughbreds, and so it just was a little more um, nostalgic, you know. It was more uh, exciting to be. And so I grew up thinking about I was going to Kentucky one day, and it was kind of a fairy tale. And I just one day decided to do it, pack, back, pack the car after college, and move to Kentucky and, and give it a go. And the worst thing that could happen, 
get your ass kicked, you know. So I was like, <laughs> go home. But um, yeah, so it, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. Um, it was fun. It's, it's almost, I think it's been 25 years that I, I made the move and made the switch, and it's been uh, it's been probably the best thing I've ever done. Speaking of fun, I, I would imagine that it, advising. Uh, on the purchase of a $1.8 million horse is, is probably fun for someone in, in your position. But I heard a little rumor that, that, uh, that you almost, uh, you almost pinned the horse on someone else uh, that, that when they asked you if, if, if you were the one that uh, was going to be signing the ticket. When they came with the ticket, I was trying to be funny, I guess. I, <laughs> you know, lady comes with her ticket to sign and got a cameras everywhere in signing the ticket and um, I just was trying to make a joke out of it. And I, uh lady looked at me and said, is that you? And I said, no, it's that guy walking by. And she chased that guy, some poor innocent guy walking by. <laughs> and the guy turned around and looked at a $1.8 million ticket. And he's, he got all scared. But I was laughing. And she quickly recovered and realized I was playing a joke on her. But uh, no, it's, you know, it's, got a, it's a serious game we play. And I try to have a little fun um, doing that. And, and that's what I've been around Bob Baffert. He, he's a little bit like that. He's, uh, he makes the game fun. Uh, it's, it's obviously a very stressful environment and uh, industry, and, but he finds a way to have fun with his owners and, and everybody around him. So it, it kind of, it's, it's, I like that aspect of it. I think that that was probably the first time as a young racing fan, the first time that your name kind of popped up uh, in, in my sight when it came to some of the horses you did with, I think Dre Fong was, was one of them. And did you meet Bob because of, of a client or did you meet Bob? Be, did, was your relationship with those clients because of a relationship with Bob? Which one came first? I, I met Bob at the horse sales. Um, originally first time I met him was just at a horse sale. We were looking at horses. We ran to, we kind of ran into each other at first. And, um, we, uh, we looked at horses together, and, and uh, he was nice enough to uh, let me walk around with him and look at horses a long time ago. This is back during the real quiet days. Um, and I uh, just started being being friends that way. And then um, John Secura and, and Bob um, were good friends, and I went to work for John, and, and then I, my relationship with Bob got, um, you know, a little bit stronger I guess um, working with John um, at Hillendale and, and um, in that regard so and just that relationship just grew and gave me the opportunity to buy horses for him and um, work with him and it just you know it just got um, the relationship got stronger and stronger over the years and I guess we had a little bit of success and kept your job and, you know, and, and just like anything I guess just um, get lucky and your job <laughs> you're very humble that's a very humble response there's i it reminds me donato of the the old saying that uh the harder you work the the more lucky you get but of course there is just like within gambling i'm, I'm sure on your side of the business there there is uh the, there is that element of of luck as well what do you think when you when you look at horse players donato what do you what do you see? I'm just curious what what the the gamblers if they if they factor in at all. If you if you consider them, you mean like horse gamblers? Like, yeah, like guys that, that that gamble and bet at the track. Exactly. Yeah, I mean i I've always thought that uh, you know the, the two most two most important people in the business are the are the gamblers, the betters, and the guys who buy the horses. I mean. The guy who buys the horse, if, if it wasn't for him, none of us would have a job. There wouldn't be a racetrack. There wouldn't be, you know, the gambler would have, he, he's got choices. He can go gamble elsewhere. But so, in the, you know, we, I think we, sometimes we fail to, in, in this country, fail to recognize that the owner of the horse, the guy who actually wrote the check and bought the horse, is the most important guy in the industry. And... Sometimes that guy's not taken care of properly, um, and obviously, then the guy who gambles—it's that's he's probably the second most important person in the industry. And after that, you know, we're distant third and fourth, I think. 
Um, so yeah, yeah, you have to respect the, the gambler. It's important. Without them, we, we wouldn't have my purses and, and uh, attendance. You know, the product continues with the gambler, in my opinion. But um, but you know, it's, everybody's got a crazy way of, of handicapping uh, programming. We we all have a certain sickness and growing up and learning how to gamble. And you're 10 years old, you take your racing form to the to the class and teachers do reading the racing form uh, that was most of us were guilty of that but everyone has a different way of reading it it's, it's uh, always nice to, to hear a different um, thought process of, of gamblers and, you know sometimes you think because you're involved with certain horses and trainers you have an edge I don't think so sometimes too much information it, it doesn't work for you I think but Donato, it's Sean. Um, you know, you're talking about how you got to get lucky, and and you're talking about how you you packed up the car and head to Kentucky, and and you know it kind of brings me back to when I loaded up my car and headed down to Kentucky and and landed at Hillendale and got to work with you and John, and and you know how got lucky that was to get my career started. Um, and and you yourself, you know, you you landed down here and and you got to work for Johnny Jones there at Walmack and. And uh, really, you know, you have a lot of contemporaries that are uh, from your, your age there that um, have also come out of that uh, university, as you could say. Just why don't you expand upon about that, about, you know, who Johnny Jones was and, and the impact he had on you and, and uh, the impact on the in- industry that he left? Well, oh, Johnny Jones is, is, is a legend. He's an, he's an icon in the thoroughbred business. So, um, so a lot of people didn't get to know him. Um, he was a, a, just a fun guy to work for and work with. He, he really brought a lot of fun every day to work. Um, and uh, he, he was just a, an amazing person. He could make a decision really quick and move forward and never look back. And passed away, and I got to talk to him in, in September. Uh, I, I heard that he wasn't doing very well. And, but, uh, you know, he's just a legend. I mean, I don't know how to talk to anybody about him there's not one person that'll ever say anything bad about him uh he's just a he was a fun guy and i hope one day there is a book written about him and because he was that kind of guy he came to kentucky at a time where it you know there was um it was hard to make it he showed up there from texas with his cowboy hat cowboy boots and and he uh rubbed shoulders did business with sangster the queen um you know, everybody. Uh, Nearchus got the source called Nuria from France, standard Walmack and alleged time was a two time arc winner. Um, I mean, it was unbelievable at the time. Um, I mean, Gainesway and, and Walmack were the two super farms uh, going on in the, uh, in the 90s when I, when I got there. But, uh, you know, Johnny yeah. Jones also was known for, for giving young guys a start. Uh, he, he gave a lot of opportunities, but he was one of the first guys to give um, Fletcher horses, uh, all kinds of guys that were young on their own, starting off. John Moynihan gave him a job, and Kerry uh, Cawthon, and just David and Gordo, you know, just pretty pretty amazing. This the uh, Lanigan um, kid in, in, in England that trains. Um, so this, he was a pretty fascinating guy. He was just a he loved to help people, and if you had a desire to, to work hard and, and, and come to work every day, he'd give you a chance. So he was, uh, gave me an opportunity. He didn't have to, uh, and he did, and, and I was grateful to him for, for doing that. One of the things our listeners have really reacted well to so far on this show, Donato, are stories of specific horses. And I know there are a lot of bloodstock agents who have stories about the first time they saw a certain horse or the first time they knew there was something special in store for a horse they were associated with. Is there a particular moment, a eureka moment, you might say, for you with any of the runners that you've been involved with that you might want to share? I don't know. There's been a lot, a lot of moments that I thought I found next great one, and unfortunately it didn't turn out. But uh, but uh, no, there is definitely moments where you you have a, a certain feeling in your gut that you've come across something special, and um, and you you know you try to find a way to uh, buy the horse, and, uh, call the right person that 
that's going to buy the horse and uh, not quit quit on you and and you know quit. I mean, bidding wise. Um, so it, yeah, there's been there's been lots of horses that I've, I've come across that gave, kind of gave you that feeling. And you know, Bob always taught me when we you know worked the horse out is you know you have to follow your gut instincts. Whatever your gut, at the end of the day, when you decide what to do, it's your it comes down to your gut feeling and what you think is this, you know, is this something that, is this a runner? Is this a horse that's going to give you everything they have um, in the afternoon? And, and uh, you know, so, I mean, we all look at horses um, somewhat uh, the same and somewhat different, but it, I think it's just, a, there's there's been a lot of horses that, that have, I, I've um, come across that, like, Arrogate was one that really recently was what, like, when he came out it was he had just presence about him and he was that way and um those are you know bought him as a as a yearling um at the two-year-old sale you kind of get to cheat a little bit more because you get to see him on the racetrack and give a little more information given to you as you get to see them perform um you know and so it's a more morely decision based on performance um in um no wheelings it's just it's uh, it's hard to judge. I think uh, the younger they are, the harder it is to judge um, uh, an athlete of, of that sort. But um, uh, I like the yearling sales. It's um, it's fun. So a little pedigree talk. Hillendale stands Curlin. Um, I'm a huge Curlin fan. Windstar stands Exaggerator, three-time Grade One winner, multi-millionaire. We've got the impeccably bred Global Campaign. That we're that just won the Pier Pan. Uh, the last two weekends have been excellent for Curlin, uh, especially with the Philly Point of Honor that that you were uh, involved with with Mr. Conley. Um, why do you want to expand upon the the influence that Curlin is is having in the breed right now, and 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 if he could be that generational type sire that we could be talking about for many decades? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean Curlin is he did it the the, the hard way. You know, he came in. Um, decorated racehorse, obviously. And first couple of years of stud, he was real quiet. He, he kind of got going slow, and his offsprings weren't. Um, they didn't, you know, typically look like these long, rangy, athletic horses. They were. They took a little time to mature. He was kind of more of a late maturing sire um, physically on the track. Um, so I mean, a lot of these horses are very different. The, you don't typically see Curlin's um, while you in the morning. They're they're just their horses that try hard in the afternoon. Um, you know, the ones I've been around are not the ones that come out and work you know, bullet works in the morning. They're more afternoon horses, and and then they try. They're just they they're all triers, and I think that's the difference between um, those that's down to separate themselves, become great stallions. Is the, the something there's something in them that he throws that want to fight um and that, and not give up so he's that kind of horse and you know he to me he looks he's a he's a son of smart strike and obviously i think he looks a little bit like like smart strike and like smart strike himself he his his that career kind of got got going slow and um great racehorse and it's just sometimes we give up too quick on stallions before we let you get out of here, I did want to probe a little bit more about the sale. Kind of an obvious question here, but I was curious what drew you to the sales topper and what was responsible for that $1.8 million purchase price we were talking about a little bit earlier in the show. You know, that, that affiliate that we bought yesterday, sales topper, she, um, it wasn't, you know, in my mind, it was no secret. You know, she wasn't this Philly that was little, like, Needle in the haystack. She she stood out. She was a queen. She looked like a queen. She was big and beautiful. Um, you know, she had a, a, a lot of presence when you went saw its barn. By uh, into mischief, good family. Um, and um, she was just a beautiful individual. And then on the racetrack, she performed exceptional on the racetrack. And that uh, racetrack is Maryland. And, it's a bull ring. It's a half-mile track, and the turns are very, very tricky. It's very tough to get around. And um, as, as big as she was, for her to, to 
uh, negotiate those those turns and and um, and get around that racetrack the way she did and gallop out the way she did. So she, my point is, she just did everything. She, you know, everything perfect, and she checked every box. And when they do that, they're going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know. You never know what they're going to cost, but you just got to call the guy with the, with a lot of money and and tell him it's going to cost a lot of money and be ready for a fight. And he, um, you know, Michael Lund Peterson is a great guy. He's a player. He's fun. He's great to be around. He's just, he's a player. He, he's, um, he came to the sales and he likes to come to the sales. He lives about 15 minutes from the sales and I took him to see the Philly and he liked her. And so I, I think it, you know, it, it's important to have the, the owner, the guy who's going to write the check, be there and, and, and have fun. And he enjoyed it. Uh, you know, he smoked a, a private pack of cigarettes in less than an hour. <laughs> and uh, But it, it, it was so much fun um, watching him and seeing him uh, get excited when we bought that Australia. So, I mean, there, it was no secret. I mean, she was the buzz horse. It was probably, probably the best two-year-old I've seen uh, this year or in a long time at a two-year-old sale. Uh, who knows, you know, I hope she's going to stay healthy. And and um, she flew last night, got on a plane, and Texan took her to Sanita to Bob. And so she's in good hands, and, and um, well, Bob's the best. So he's, you know, he got to see her too. And, and um, after the Preakness, and, um, he loved her. You know, it was like she was, not, she was obvious. She just needed a lot of money to buy her, it makes in my it's, opinion it's no surprise that when you're dealing with that level of money that you're going to be looking at one who clicks all the boxes any other stories from the from the sale or any others you you feel like talking about before we let you get out of here i you know i think it was a really good sale um it's um it's you know those horses that do everything right on on the racetrack sometimes those pedigrees are are, uh, are pushed aside at the trio sales performance and looks is more important at a tier cell than the pedigree. You look at a horse like the um, uh, one horse that sold for 850 uh, yesterday. He was by Colonel John and that's very light pedigree. But, you know, if they win those races, um, you know, they uh, make their own pedigrees, big races. But, um, yeah, so a tier cell, it's always fun. You, just, you can't look at pedigree at all. It's just based on performance and on the racetrack, and then of course they've got a vet. They gotta, they gotta do everything right. Barn, keep their weight and keep their their mind going. And it's very hard to do what they do. Um, they'll never be asked to go as fast as they did, um, ever. And the fact that they did that at a young age is pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, but um, yeah, so the, I thought it was a very good sale overall. There's a lot of guys that did, did very well, and obviously there's some people that were disappointed. Uh, but you know, I think I love I love seeing horses on the dirt that perform on dirt, material sales as opposed to a, a synthetic track. It's just easier to, I think it's uh, in my opinion, easier to separate them uh, on the dirt than it is on, on the synthetic track. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show very much today, and we look forward to having you back on at some point in the future. All right, well, great. Thanks for having me um, on uh, on the show, and. Uh, Appreciate it. We'll be talking soon. Thanks. Thanks, Bye. All right, guys. That was pretty cool. Amazing. For me, the thing I'm most excited about about this show is it's like an adult education course for me, getting to hear these people at the top of the game uh, being so willing to answer these questions. I just feel like I'm going to learn something every week, and I hope our, our audience feels the same. Sean, for you as a true insider in the business, somebody who already works in racing. I imagine you're still getting plenty out of these uh, characters as well. Absolutely. And, and it's just great that, you know, Donato and, and Alex and Jonathan who are, who do uh, represent uh, the industry extremely well and, and, and their clients well, that they, uh, they want to come on and, and share their stories because, because there are so many stories that go into all these horses and, and how they win races and how people find them. And, and I think that's, that's part of the industry. A lot of people get to see the races, but, uh, 
you know, the behind the scenes stuff and, and the stories that, that make these horses Hall of Famers or grade one winners or, or high prize horses are, are, are great stories and, and not told enough. JK, what did you think of those insights from our guest today? You know, I, I thought it was awesome. You know, I think the, the show, the concept of this show came from sitting at some restaurant, some bar, some corner of the earth, <laughs> listening to these guys talk about the behind the scenes things uh, that go on with these horses, these pedigrees, these sales, these private purchases. And it got me really excited to like let other people hear it. I think it's unbelievably interesting from a horse player's perspective. And, uh, and, and look, it makes me feel a little bit bad about myself, right? I mean, Donato bought a horse for $1.8 million <laughs> Uh, in the last couple of days, the most expensive thing I did was like fill up my car with gas, right? I, I, I got to, I got to pick up, I got to step my game up a little bit. We'll get you there. We'll get you there at the sales one day. That'll be, that'll be very, that'll be You're very Jonathan, entertaining. You evolution. are a grade one winning owner. Don't give your, you got <laughs> some true. credit to be had. That's uh, very true. That's very one true. One for one. I am one for one. That's true. You're, Un very, you're very right about that. Uh, undefeated as an owner, actually, right? Two for two with your, your brief foray with, with our friends at, uh, at 10 strike racing. I mean, there's, how yeah, many look, owners uh, get to be undefeated? I, I don't really know what it feels like to lose. <laughs> I could speak if I chose to, but we're going to call that a wrap for this edition of the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I want to thank our guests, Jonathan Thomas, Alex Solis, and Delano Lani. Of course, we'll thank Jonathan Kinchin and Sean Tugel as well. Most of all, we want to thank all of you, the listeners. This show has been a production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way.